This is an ABC podcast. And good day. Tara Delangraff with you on this Friday lunchtime, bringing you the country hour from the Esperance Studios once again, where the sun's out, it's shining through my studio window here in the state southeast. We are getting closer to harvest with all this weather, and uh, we're going to be heading to the eastern wheat belt to see how the crops are faring after a cold, frosty winter, and then, of course, some early hot days as well. Then we're going to be heading further afield, overseas to Israel, in fact, where weather's just one consideration for farmers as they attempt to continue caring for their crops amongst the backdrops of war. And on a slightly more positive note, between now and half past 12, we'll check in on a biotech facility set to open in Broome using a waste product from the pearling industry to make synthetic bone material. So more on that shortly. Hope you can stay with me. First, though, a large-scale indoor sheep feedlot designed to meet demand for a southwest meat processor is one step closer to getting built thanks to a $100,000 state government grant. Kingston Rest Farms will build the feedlot in Boyanup and lambs will be transported by road to V&V Walsh, about 20 kilometres north in Bunbury. Farm manager Matthew Garstone is hoping stage one of the feedlot will be complete in about six months. Basically what we're trying to do is moving from an outdoor sheep feedlot into an indoor sheep feedlot, out of the heat or the cold in, um, in summer or winter respectively, and we're moving them in to an indoor environment just so they can grow a lot more happily. It's, it's the final basically 30 days on a high-end ration. We need these animals to be as happy and as low stress as we can, and this indoor environment is really about optimising that animal's um, growth capacity. It's not a super great time to be a sheep farmer at the moment. A lot of issues happening, um, the live export ban coming in and concerns about feed and a dry summer and, and everything. Why, why have you guys decided to break into this space? And are you concerned or are you feeling optimistic? For farmers, we really need to take the 5, 10 and 15 year time frame because we've got that cultural aspect where we don't, we don't shift into other industries just because it gets a bit rough. We tend to stay there and tough it out for a while and we tend to do quite well for a few years. Uh, so at this point, we're in a bit of a low. I think on the 10-year 10 10 year time frame, even the five-year time frame, I think the sheep industry is still looking quite strong. We're just going to have to go through a bit of pain between now and then. Okay, can you run us through the logistics, like the size of it and, and where it'll be and how much it's going to cost you? Yeah. Uh, so this is probably stage stage one for the, the grant money that we've just received from the Red Grants program is going towards our first shed of a three, and it's going to take us from um, up to sixty thousand lambs a year. That will be able to um, that will be able to grow and fatten. From there, uh, stage two will take us up to about two hundred and fifty thousand a year. Uh, this is reasonably large. It takes us to uh, about three to four percent of the state's slaughter lambs in theory. So that, that's if every duck duck in the pond lines up quite nicely. But that's the hope. What about timeframes? When do you expect it to sort of be set up and, and running? I, th- I think with this red grant, we'll hope to have the first year done within six months. Uh, we've, we've done most of the groundwork. Uh, red tape's been an extended process. Um, I think the government's been, been quite good to work with, but they've been overworked themselves. So hopefully we're getting to the end of that one. And yeah, we're pretty much ready to go. And we, we want to <laughs> yeah, hopefully get it done pretty quickly. Southwest's not super known as a, a sheep producing region. Why here? Why boy and up? 
So I think initially we started out as a beef trading farm ourselves as a grazing enterprise and we switched into sheep primarily due to just market opportunities. And then what it eventually turned into is we work very closely with VMV Walsh and part of us being so close to them geographically is that animals can turn up to us and go through their feeding process and then they've only got a 15 to 20 minute truck, um, truck ride into the processor. And this really makes sure that the animals are just very low stress by the time they get that to us. It's just pretty much the best way you can go about ensuring a high quality meat product for the consumer is that proximity is quite important. And I think that's the niche that we're filling. Are there many other un- indoor sheep feedlots in WA at the moment? So there's one in York that was specifically designed for this. Um, I think they're doing reasonably well. Aside from that, there's not anything for sheep uh, for lamb feedlots. There are indoor feedlots that were servicing the export industry. Uh, with the abolishment of the, um, that industry uh, pretty close, they'll probably be swinging into this space as well shortly. Was there some community concerns about this? Obviously, the people buying up have issues with the, the cattle sale yards a little bit with the proximity to the town. What, what can you say about that in regards to this project? Uh, yeah, so there was a little bit of interest in towards the environmental stat- status of this um, application. Because we do import so many nutrients, there is concern that we can actually damage the groundwater or even get uh, nutrients into the Geograph Bay. I think these answers, answers or concerns are being dealt with very sufficiently. This is a very environmentally conscious design. We did, we did a bit of travelling to New Zealand where they've got very tight environmental controls. And we do think that this is where Australia's headed. So this has been future-proofed. Everything's existing within catchments, under roofs. Uh, we've got waterproof liners everywhere. If I wanted to somehow get new, excessive nutrients into the environment, I've actually got to pay a diesel bill to do it. So I think we've answered the concerns very well. And I guess this red grant, you know, that's very exciting to, re- to, to receive. How are you feeling about hitting the ground running now, especially with this extra funding? I think this funding's going to just, yeah, it's going to give us the final uh, final go-ahead. It's really really the signal that I think everyone wants us. I think it's, it says that the community and the probably the state at large is really keen for a business such as ourselves to go ahead. And that funding's quite significant. It, it hasn't been easy for the last few years on this particular process and costs have gone up significantly as part of COVID and other factors. And yeah, it's just really nice that the government's been willing to go and invest, aware that we are investing back a little bit into other people and other jobs. And it's just been appreciated. It's going to help really well. Kingston Rest Farms Manager Matthew Garstone speaking to Ellie Honeyboy. While we're still on the topic of sheep, there's been a lot of media attention recently on very low sheep prices right across Australia and the impact they're having on farmers. But businesses that rely on the sheep industry are also feeling the pinch. Noel Lawrence owns a shearing supply shop in Perth. He says the last few months have been the worst his business has ever gone through and he blames it on the federal government's plan to phase out the live sheep trade. The last couple of months we have seen a steady decline in the sales and uh, all we can put that down to was simply the the concern of the farmers of where we are with the livestock trade and the price of the sheep being so low, the farmers just want to get out of sheep now. They don't want to uh, keep them. So exactly how much is the current sheep price impacting your business? Our sales are down uh, overall about... 15% over the three or four month period compared to last year and we haven't seen that pretty well since we've started it's and that we started in 1986 
and this month even looks like it, October, though it's only young, sales are down already for this month. What is that telling you? Well, it's telling me that there is a less interest in sheep at the moment and that farmers, talking to them, certainly want to get out of sheep while they can. And with cropping, with good prices that they're getting now with the wheat and barley, it's not helping the sheep industry for people wanting to stay. What does that mean for you moving forward? Well, it's going to be hard. Um, I could be in a position where we may need to put staff off um, and having spoken with similar stores in the east that they are experiencing the same problem, I don't want to put anybody off, but we may have to to survive. How are you feeling? I don't feel too good. I don't feel happy. Um, this was something we, I've started off as a hobby uh, with my family. Uh, we've enjoyed it. It's something that we're all passionate about. It's something we all know. And to see what's happening now, uh, that, that hurts me. Last year was a good year. Last year was a reasonable good year for sheep, a reasonable good year for wool. But as soon as it was announced that this trade was going to cease, uh, that is when the, uh, de the decline or interest in sheep has started. That's Noel Lawrence from Top Gun Shearing speaking with Sophie Johnson. And uh, we will have a look at uh, wool prices later in the program. Uh, down a little bit again from last week, but we'll uh, get there just before the one o'clock news. Right now, though, it has just gone 14 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. Well, a waste product from the West Australian pearling industry will soon be used to make synthetic bone material for orthopaedic trauma and reconstructive surgeries. It'll be done at a new biotech facility that opens in Broome today. So the previously low-value waste product known as Pearl Shell and Mother of Pearl will get turned into something called Pearl Bone. Minister for Medical Research Stephen Dawson says the state government has supported this venture because he thinks it'll give the Kimberley a boost. Well, look, really excited to uh, be involved in the launch of what is a world-class laboratory and manufacturing facility in Broome. It will be staffed by a number of people, but uh, including scientists, and it really does, uh, I guess, uh, bring a new dimension to uh, economic diversification in the Kimberley and in Broome in particular. How much money are you expecting it to bring into the local community? Do you have a figure? No, well, certainly the, the, the Cook government have provided some funding to the project through the Future Health Research and Innovation Fund, and so we've provided about $700,000 uh, towards the project. Uh, but what it means is it puts Broome on the map, essentially. So the product itself is a groundbreaking idea to create synthetic bone um, from pearl. And uh, the business has now reached a, a major milestone in that it's in a position to open its laboratory uh, in Broome. It is being developed by a WA-based biotech company called Marine Biomedical. The product will be used as a low-risk alternative to the synthetic bone substitutes that are already used in the market if someone needs a, you know, a new, new knee or a new joint. Minister for Medical Research Stephen Dawson speaking with Alice Marshall. And as you heard the Minister mention, the company behind this is Marine Biomedical. CEO Patrick Mose says work first started back in 2016. Professor Minghao Zeng from the University of Western Australia uh, came to Broome and actually had the opportunity to go out uh, to one of the pearl farms here and, and had a look around at the um, how the whole operation works and, and looked at the culturing of the pearl, which was where his original interest was. And then he realised um, that the byproduct, which was the mother of pearl, was just kind of being uh, utilised in, in a way that was 
not commercial for the industry, uh, byproduct was sold to China. So he started to look into it, understand whether it, um, what sort of calcium carbonate it contained, and then started to do a lot of work on, on its ability to biomimic human bone. And fast forward to today, and we're on the cusp of opening our facility this evening. It's quite incredible. So how do you manufacture pearl bone from a pearl shell? How do you do it? Uh, it's, it's quite a lengthy process. We need to obviously get the shell into a very high level of quality. So our um, quality control standards are so high because we need to make sure that all we're contributing into the product is the pure calcium carbonate out of the ocean. So it's a process of uh, cleaning up the shell and removing the outer outer layer, the external layer which is exposed to the ocean, and, and really just utilising the nacre all by itself and compressing that into a, a fine powder. And then it runs through a series of uh, reactions to get it to biomimic human bone. That's incredible. So what circumstances can it be used? Oh, so we're looking at uh, trauma medicine, actually. So we're looking at bone void fillers. So um, areas where the surgeon typically identifies a bone void, which has been caused by a number of different clinical situations. And we've developed pearl bone as a putty. Saline's added to it in the theatre and fairly quickly within a minute it moulds into a beautiful putty and the surgeon would insert the putty into, uh, into that bone void. So, yep, we think, we think that's probably the most easiest way to use the product at the moment. The surgeons seem to gravitate towards the use of putties. How much of a game changer is this? I mean, is, is this an issue where um, there's a shortage of implants for, for these kind of situations? No, Nadia, I guess there's not a, sh- a shortage. There's a significant number of, of bone substitutes, synthetic bone substitutes on the market. We're really targeting the natural um, ingredient, which is nacre. So unchanged for millions of years in the, in the environment itself. It's a, a, quite a unique product. So we're really focusing on a couple of strategies around utilising the byproduct from the industry. So keeping it local, of course, and then making sure that Surgeons have an option of using a natural product and then at situations where the patient has a choice, providing a a natural alternative to a synthetic bone substitute. And it seems that a lot of surgeons are interested in and quite inquisitive about the natural component within it. So, yeah. So you'll manufacture them in broom? We will. And so then what, you harvest your own oysters to, to get the pearl shell? No, we secure the oysters actually from from the producers, um, and particularly Willie Creek Pearls has been a provider of those uh, raw materials for us. So um, it's a, a good demonstration of industry and innovation working together in Broome. So how far off before we see this being used in, in humans? Well, we're hoping for a clinical trial towards the end of next year. Uh, and we're, we've got our fingers crossed for regulatory approval in the US, July, August uh, next year, 2024. And from there, we'll do a human clinical study in Australia is our intention. So uh, quite exciting. Um, That human clinical study will take some time. uh, But regulatory approval in the US allows us to market the product in the US. So So you're the only one, Patrick, doing this? Uh, With with NACA, yes, we've actually patented in five countries. So... Yes, we can, we can say we're the only ones doing it. And to do it in Broome is even more exciting. This is a big deal. It is. It is. And uh, bringing innovation to, to the regions is something important for us. Uh, I've grown up here, 20, oh, 25 years I've been here, and I worked in the pearling industry for about 18 of those. And it's good to still be involved in the industry. I love the industry. 
and everyone gravitates to Broome because of of the pearl. And for us, um, they have another reason to gravitate, and that's to understand that there's a medical device coming out of, of a regional town in Western Australia. That's Marine Biomedical CEO Patrick Moe speaking to ABC Morning Show presenter Nadia Mitsopoulos. Isn't science and nature just amazing? Now, something else that I hope is amazing is the weather. We will check in with the Bureau uh, in the next 10 minutes. Before we do, though... The death toll in the Israel-Gaza war is rising and it's also taking a terrible toll on agriculture. Farms in Israel's south were among the first hit by Hamas attacks, with many farmers and young kibbutz workers killed or taken hostage. Amir Parat is the biggest carrot grower in Israel and farms in the north where things are a little bit quieter. But he says the war is affecting everyone. The south part of Israel, which is around half of the of the agriculture growing in this in this part of israel uh is absolutely mess it's a war zone so most of the areas are unreachable for the moment were those areas um, evacuated some kibbutzes which are the main uh the biggest maybe growers organization in the south are evacuated or you know unfortunate i i spoke with, with with a friend of mine there he told me amir look the people, the ground, the ground workers, the field workers, even the type workers that that came to Israel to work and provide to their families, most of those people are gone. A lot of the of the uh, field farmers were taking place in the teams of groups of uh, to guard the the kibbutz or or the place. There were like the the civilian. A force of of protecting the the, the kibbutz, for instance, yep. and the majority of them, naturally, because they're young young people, men's, were from the fields, from of farmers, and those groups vanished, have been murdered. They even killed the Thai workers, which are foreigners in Israel. And, and just describe no, the agriculture in those areas. Is it, is it largely yeah, based yeah. on the so, kibbutz, or so is it what sort of things are they growing? The kibbutzes, the kibbutzes are big players on the agriculture in the south. In my industry, only maybe sixty or seventy percent of the carrots is growing in the south part of of Israel. So, what impact is that having so, on on your business? My business is that I received a phone call. What whatever I can do to enlarge. We are now uh, drilling, uh, we're sitting now. So whatever I can do to enlarge, um, because they don't know what will be the damage yet for the fields themselves for now, to cover some of the losses expected in the south. So we will do everything we can to do that. And they will also damage the, uh, the Hamas damaged the water. So a large pumping station. Yeah, so the pumping stations were damaged and burned and some of the fields uh, without the capability to, to, to water, to irrigate. Those areas as well are huge in citrus and avocados, which, by the way, were the places the second and the third day most of the tourists were hiding inside those orchards. That's what I, I heard. Hiding, you're right. Um, it's, everything is, is, is frozen and stopped. They cannot walk freely around they cannot work their farm. But the, the border has been secured, though, hasn't it? So I'm, I'm assuming border, they will be able to get the back. Control, yeah, yeah. The control seems to be back 
to Israel, but still, every hour at least, uh, a few alarms. It's not hours. It's every few minutes, alarms and missiles being shot whenever they will fell in the, in the civilian area. Mm. So you sit in your living room and you have 15 seconds to run away from a rocket or missile or whatever. It's very wow. hard to work that the farms that way. Nobody knows the exact numbers, but a big uh, number of workers are gone, right. evacuated or gone. I, I know about a milk farm in Alumim, in, in one of the kibbutzes that them was hit very hard. They have no one to treat the cows, uh, no way to water it, no one to milk the cows. So they will search for volunteers, and I know they found volunteers from other milk farms in the central of Israel or in the north that came to support. Otherwise, the cows will be damaged as well. And what will happen in the next few days, do you think? First of all, I hope, I hope um, in the north it will keep quiet. This is the a main uh, factor of stability. If uh, Hezbollah will join the party, as we said, it will be um, a much different situation. That could, How are you preparing uh, for that possibility? Everyone has his uh, shelter ready and gather food and water and pray for quiet times. So I don't think they, will, they can be quiet. Would many farmers be involved in any action in Gaza, do you think? I am a, I was a soldier, of course. I served in a special unit. I, was an, I am an officer. A, a lot of my friends, which are farmers, <laughs> the one who survived the first few days is in the army now because it's young people, young men who called to the reserved to help the, fight the war. That's carrot grower Amir Parat speaking with David Clawton on the toll the Israel-Gaza war is taking on agriculture and the people. 27 minutes past 12. After news headlines and the weather, we'll take you to the Eastern Wheat Belt to check in on the crops in that neck of the woods. But heading a bit further east first, because the forecast for crops in New South Wales is a little bit unclear at the moment. It looks like volumes would be down about 40% due to dry conditions, but unprecedented heat and wind in September has caused significant damage to wheat crops especially. Rowan Brill is an agronomist and farmer in Garmain near Wagga Wagga, and he told Michael Condon he's had some decent rain, but it won't be enough to rescue the New South Wales crop overall. Yeah, good rain around here, probably a bit further, some of the Riverina, maybe, you know, back in the, you know, 10 to 15 mil range, which is probably a bit late for a lot of crops. Um, but yeah, not to complain. Luckily, we had what we were cursing last harvest was all the water we had at harvest and bogging headers, but it's it's helped get the crop through this year. But nine years out of 10, we're, we need moisture. So yeah, as soon as it, if we get a rain in summer, we'll be trying to knock the weeds and stop them from using moisture fairly quickly, yeah. So what would be ideal from here on in? Depends where you are, really. Like, it certainly, in this environment, Wallenbean, they'd happily take another 30, 40 mils, I would have thought. But once you get, you know, out to the northern, western Riverina, I'd say, you know, there's, there's canola crops wind road and probably canola crops nearly harvested by now. Barley's probably ready for a harvester. Um, wheat's probably close, so they're probably not looking for a lot of rain right now. So, yeah, it just really depends on where you are. And you go, you go south, they'd probably happily take another rain too. And up, up north, they probably, you know, their, their year's over. Yeah, in a perfect world, they'll get their bit of crop off and, um, and hope, the, hope the clouds open up and, and sort of fill that profile again, which historically they should get 
um, summer rain and fill the profile and grow most of their crop on summer rainfall. But, um, yeah, hopefully they do get that summer rain and the storm events and that sort of thing to, to top it up. Yeah, so we're hearing about that. I think that the figure that the DPI are putting on on it is that um, 40% of the New South Wales crop is struggling and that sort of dovetails in with what you're seeing? Yeah, it's. I would have said for wheat it's probably even more than that. I would have thought probably, you know, the big areas are still... Like if we get a big year, the tonnes come from your Borellans, your Condoblans and your um, Ningans and your Canambles and Walgots and that sort of thing. And that area is, like, I would have thought that if you took all that area, it's probably 80% down, I would have thought. So, you know, the big tonnes come off the big hectares to the west, but that, that area is massively down compared to average, well, certainly compared to last year anyway. That's New South Wales agronomist Rowan Brill there. You're listening to The Country Hour and it's coming up half past 12, which means it's time to get news headlines with Tony Carr today. Good afternoon, Tony. Good afternoon, Tara. WA's Children's Commissioner says the state's youth detention system is failing after a 16-year-old boy attempted to take his own life in his cell yesterday. The teenager remains in a critical but stable condition in hospital. Corrective Services Minister Paul Papalia yesterday said work was ongoing to try to improve conditions in detention and the supports available to young people. But Commissioner for Children and Young People Jacqueline McGowan-Jones says detainees are still not getting that help and are spending too long locked in their cells. Police have started investigating a fiery truck crash in the Pilbara which left three people dead. A triple road train carrying 25 tonnes of ammonium nitrate collided with a car on the Great Northern Highway on Tuesday afternoon. The crash resulted in a fire and a chemical spill with authorities concerned over the risk of an explosion. DFES Pilbara Superintendent Daryl Ray says the fire has been extinguished. And the World Food Program has warned that the situation in Gaza is dire with food and water quickly running out. The territory is under intense retaliatory bombardment by Israel and a total blockade following last Saturday's deadly attack by Hamas militants. Tara, I'll be back with some more news at one o'clock. Oh, thank you so much, Tony. Yes, we were just hearing about um, some of those conditions uh, over in Israel. Very, uh, I suppose we can't really imagine them here at home, can we? Uh, we will be heading to the Eastern Wheat Belt to see what conditions are like there shortly on the program and uh, also going to be heading uh, a little bit overseas to have a look at some lupin protein as well. Uh, lots of exciting things coming up for you in the next half an hour. This week on Landline, cattle and conservation on an outback station. People are fascinated by this interface. I think they come along and think, we love what you're doing. We're trying to work out how you're doing it. And a story of love, community and the power of generosity. Well, it's just giving them something back for, for the good that they're doing for the community. That's Landline, Sundays 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And in a moment, you'll get a sneak peek of that cattle and conservation story. Uh, it's at Bulo Station, uh, Bulo River Station, I should say, on the WA Northern Territory border. And that features uh, a little bit later in the program. And of course, you can tune into Landline on the weekend to watch it in all its glory as well. Uh, right now, though, it's time to head to the Weather Bureau. Caroline Crow is ready for us, duty forecaster. Caroline, um, let's start in the Southwest Land Division. I'm in Esperance today. What are we expecting over the next few days, please? 
Yeah, so at the moment, uh, there's a ridge, uh, which is going to be the dominant feature over the next couple of days, um, and uh, which is sort of uh, extending along the south coast, and it's going to strengthen, and there's also a uh, trough, uh, which is forming down the west coast as well. So those combined, we're getting uh, winds from the east, uh, and they're gradually going to turn around over the next couple of days, uh, heading into sort of Monday, they'll be more northeasterly, and then uh, the trough moves inland on Tuesday, where we see the winds uh, go a little bit more more northerly and we'll get that uh, northwest to southwesterly change along the west coast. So from a um, precipitation perspective, we're looking at uh, dry conditions throughout the forecast period at this point in time. And the main thing, I guess, is those winds um, and also uh, increasing temperatures. So at the moment, uh, as the days go along through to Monday, uh, particularly down the west coast, we're going to see warming temperatures by a few degrees each day. Uh, so coming into uh, today, uh, Mullawal, for example, is around the 36 or northern parts of the southwest land division is sort of in that mid-30s inland through around to Meriden and Southern Cross of the low 30s. And as we get further south into the Great Southern, so Katanning's 26 today and the southwest corners around 26 or those mid-20s as well. But as we get through uh, coming into... Um, Monday where we've got the peak along the west coast uh, we're looking at sort of into that mid to high 30s through our western parts um, Morrow is going to be near 39 degrees Darren 37 Cundard and 38 so really getting up there and well above average and even in the southwest corner um, Bridgetown's looking at 33, 34 degrees, Collie's 35 and getting down into the low 30s along the south coast as well and for Esperance area coming into Monday it's about the 28 degree mark and uh, through inland parts it's getting into that low to mid 30s. Uh, but as that trough moves inland, as I mentioned, and we start getting that southwesterly along the west coast, we'll get slightly cooler temperatures along the west coast, uh, sort of looking from Durian Bay and down all the way around to Albany. But as that trough moves inland and those northeasterly winds continue, we're still going to have those hot temperatures. So we're looking at sort of 37 for Southern Cross on uh, coming into Tuesday and Meriden's 38 and we'll have 33 for uh, Esperance uh, coming into Tuesday as well. So quite a lot of warm uh, wind, oh, yeah, winds bringing warm temperatures uh, down the west coast uh, for the outlook period. We are used to a little bit of uh, wind down here, Caroline, so uh, not too unusual. Um, what about the north and the eastern forecast districts, please? Yeah, so up in the still uh, similar in regards to temperatures and being uh, quite hot uh, through northern and uh, northwestern parts, particularly. Uh, so uh, Fitzroy Crossing, uh, he's looking at sort of 42 degrees today and getting along the Pilbara coast as well. We've got near 40 degrees and, and into the northwest Gascoigne Junction sitting around that temperature as well. And that's going to continue for a couple of days. So that uh, ridge to the south is really pushing some uh, east north uh East southeasterly winds, and then pretty fresh and gusty at times. Uh, but otherwise, we're looking at really generally clear conditions through most parts of the north and the east. There is the chance of getting a dry thunderstorm today uh, through inland southern and central parts of the Gascoigne uh, during today, but that will clear uh, coming into tomorrow. Um, otherwise, generally clear and sunny. Radio, any warnings for us to know about, please? No, there's currently no warnings for the state at the moment. Hmm. Well, there we go. Thank you for uh, giving us the latest. Caroline Crow, duty forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, something there's also not much of is rain. Once again, no rain was recorded anywhere in WA in the last 24 hours. This is the Country Hour with Tara DeLandgraft on ABC Local Radio WA. 
Well, it's been the season many farmers in the eastern wheat belt were expecting. After two relatively good years rain-wise, 2023 has seen very little fall from the skies. It's also thrown in some frosts and very cold weather in July and then a heatwave in August. For young Westonia farmer Tim Delaboska, despite the disappointment, he's thankful he'll still be jumping on the header in the coming weeks and harvesting some crop. Yes, we've got 7,000 hectares in Westonia. We're a mixed cropping and livestock livestock farm. So we grow wheat, barley, canola, oats, and then we've got sheep and, and cattle as well. But sort of this year, I didn't didn't put any canola in, given the fact we only got 40 mil of summer rain, and then we didn't really get a rain till sort of May. So I put that, left that in the bags, and then we ended up putting, yeah, just the wheat, barley, and the oats in. So, so Tim, if, if you look back to, I suppose, the the start of the season you were coming off a relatively good year did you do you have some did you have some pretty high hopes for this season um it's it's always a bit hard to be that skeptical in the eastern wheat belt you know i think we had a good year really good the year last year was probably our best year i reckon we had total rainfall was 391 mil of rain last year and then um, we're coming off the 2021 season of having 326 mil but, you know, given that we got really badly frosted in 21, it sort of wasn't really the greatest season for us. Oats and canola did very well, but the barley and the wheat got, got very touched up. 2022 was an exceptional year. We grew a lot of grain and it was it was quite a nice. But then you sit there and think, well, we've had two really good <laughs> rainfall years here and um, I'd, we didn't really think we were going to be in for this bad a year, given that we've only had 160 mil for the year and 46 of that came between January and March. So we're just very hesitant to what the season was going to be like. We're hoping for just, if we could just get an average season, cover our costs, given that we've um, never paid so much for fertiliser. Yeah, we're just hoping to sort of break even, but it's not going to be the case this year. So how are things looking out in the paddock at the moment? They're okay. I mean, given the given the amount of frost that we had, nothing sort of tended to grow through through June. Um, so I sort of played, try to play catch up through July and then August came and then we were getting 30 degree days mid-August. So everything sort of had to get a wriggle on and then the heat and a lot of wind has just zapped, zapped a fair bit of crop. A lot of tipping on your heavier, heavier sort of moral country and then there's even heads that have been aborted. So sort of hoping that we'll, we'll sort of get around that port at 800 to 1.2, hopefully there, somewhere there, hoping. Now, you're a relatively young farmer, Tim, but do you remember a season like this before? As you said, it was it was so cold over winter. You had those frosts and then you had really early heat as well. Yeah, okay. I've been home since 2007. Um, I can remember years where we've had a lot of those 30-degree days through August and, it, and it, really, it really hurts us out here. Everything just sort of rushes off or pinches off if we haven't had the, haven't had the moisture there. So... Um, I've been, yeah, fortunate to see the good and the bad. <laughs> I suppose giving a little bit of perspective as well as to where you pull back on inputs and that kind of thing has meant that you have to ha- have had to make some of those decisions mid-season? Uh, yeah, so like I, I had um, I had 1,500 kilos of emu that I was going to put in, but we only had that, you know, 10 mil in January and 36 in March um, for our summer rain, and then I wanted to go sort of early April with emu, but we didn't have the rain. We only had six and a half mil for April and then I didn't want to go and, you know, put 80 gram worth of seed in the ground and, and not really come to much. So I left that in the shed. So that was that decision. And then we'd normally do some top up nitrogen after seeding, but 
the same thing. We haven't had any rain. It was only six mil for April, four mil for May, and then we had June was good. We had 46 mil for June, uh, but it still wasn't enough to warrant, warrant us putting any more, more flexian out. And then we had 17 mil for July. So that was that was quite our decision done there. We just shut the checkbook and, and left it be. As you say, still gearing up for harvest though. So you, you're getting some of those those preparations done? Yeah, so we've got pretty much everything ready. It's just a few final jobs to do. We should be going in a couple of weeks, I would say. Um, there's already guys going around here in Bali and Canola. So this next week we'll we'll get a fair few guys going on Canola around here So and some Bali. But we'll be, yeah, we'll be a couple of weeks away at least. And how are your, your neighbours looking and, and faring? I mean, are you guys sort of talking about the, the season and, and how it has how it has shaped up? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are the same. It was just that so cold for so long and so many frosts. And, uh, yeah, I don't think a lot of people have had that before. Everyone's still pretty positive given you know, we've come off people that weren't frosted back in 21 have sort of had two good years. So we're sort of set up to, to wear a bad one per se. It's just, it's just a bit hard to take when your inputs were, were so expensive. That's that's the bit that hurts, I think. And as you say, not the the best year for for cropping, and um, you also run livestock. It's not exactly the uh, the ideal run for for sheep and sheep prices either. No, it's a bit of a double whammy, really. But we're we're still still ho- hoping that it'll turn around. We'll we'll normally be lamb in in um, June, so we'll we'll carry normally carry our lambs through and feed lot them and get rid of them from March through to April. So we will. Um, We'll carry them through and then hope that the market sort of lifts a little bit come that time. You know, pellets pellets are still expensive given the grain prices are quite handy at the moment. So you're paying, you know, over $400 a tonne for, for pellets. So you're kind of having to have heavy lambs to go out the door to, to sort of get some get some money back or you, you try and quit them early and, and not spend the money on them. But we'll run them through the feedlot and grow them out and, and hope, for, hope that they will um, come to something a bit better than what the price is now. You've sent some sheep off to the off to the abattoir this week, but given you do have a feedlot, will you be able to take advantage of of some of the the prices that other farmers are selling their their breeding stock for? The money that I get out of these, the black and whites that we sent, we'll we'll look at getting into some younger ewes. Sort of not spending any more money than what we got off them, but we'll just try and replace those stock with with some younger younger ewes and try and keep our flock there of around the seventeen hundred, seventeen fifty. I think. You know, the sheep work really well out here on those sort of dry years when the, the money's there for them and the cropping's not so great. Uh, they're still still a very important part of our rotation anyway. So we'll look at getting some more and, and seeing how the season comes out next year, yeah. Tim Delabosca, who farms at Westonia, about 310 kilometres east of Perth. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you're in the Eastern Wheat Belt as well, have you started harvest yet? How are things looking at your place? You can send us a text on 0448 922604. We'd love to hear from you on today's Country Hour, where the time is coming up 17 minutes to one. Well, lupins from Western Australia could soon be shipped to northern Germany for processing into plant-based proteins. WA-based regenerative food company Wide Open Agriculture has inked a deal to buy the assets of ProLupin, a former European producer and distributor of lupin-based dairy alternatives. Wide Open Ag CFO Matthew Skinner says the manufacturing capacity of the German plant is what his company needs to make and distribute its lupin-based products. ProLupin was Europe's leading lupin protein producer. They set up over 25 years ago. They were spun out of a a technical 
facility in, in Germany, and they pioneered some really interesting work in lupin protein. Uh, they were very focused on the vegan dairy market. And unfortunately, earlier this year, they went into administration and we were able to buy their assets at a, a fraction of the cost that, uh, that they would take for us to build them new. So what are the assets that have particularly caught your attention? So the, the most important one is the manufacturing facility. So we have a pilot plant in Kewdale uh, that's capable of, you know, with a bit of investment, producing 50 to 100 tonnes a year. They have a factory in northern Germany that has the ability to produce between 500 and 1,000 tonnes a year, which in the protein market essentially means commercial scale. Under the, the terms of the agreement, we also take over the staff who work there, and they're a very experienced staff. We also bought their, they have an inventory of finished product that's ready to sell, and they have their own pipeline of, of B2B sales that they were looking at. So we have a ready market for, for product, and we also have an inventory of, of raw materials. So there's some lupin flakes um, that are the start of their process. And we also have 490 tons of raw lupins that we can then uh, process through the plant. The, the last thing we bought was the trademark to their consumer product, which is called uh, Louvre, L-U-V-E. It stands for, it's short for lupin and vegan. We have that brand and you know that gives us some exciting opportunities to talk to potential purchasers of the brand who want to keep it going, but also su- we can supply lupin protein from the factory to them. You're paying about two and a half million pound for this, and I can't do the maths quickly enough to convert that into Australia. Four point two million. Ah, oh, there you go. Four point two million. Do you need to raise uh, funds to to get that money, or will that come out of the kitty? No. So we we do need to raise funds to not only purchase it, but also do the investment required to make uh, bunting protein there. So there's some additional equipment we need to do. Uh, we already have um, some firm commitments into that fundraising. If this does come off, if the sale goes ahead and you are able to get bunting protein under production in that northern German facility, does that then mean that you would use lupins grown in Europe or would you be looking at sending Australian lupins over for processing and production? That's a very good question. Our preference would be to use the regenerative lupins that we source in WA We've actually done some initial costing and it's, it looks like it's cheaper to buy regenerative lupins in WA and send them to Europe than it is to buy them in market. Obviously, we have the 490 tonnes, which is probably you know, three to six months worth of production. So we, we, we have a little bit of time to make these decisions. And Matthew, I don't want to be blunt, but I probably will be, but this company, they've been in Europe for 25 years. They were a significant manufacturer of lupin protein they're now in administration. Why do you think that your experience will be any different? How can you be profitable when they haven't been? ProLupin was very focused on their consumer-facing brand, and they were trying to solve one particular problem, which was to create a vegan dairy alternative. And the supply chain for them to do that was quite long and complex and also very costly. And the cost of supporting a consumer brand in supermarkets is, is also very, very costly. With bunting protein, have a much more versatile and functional product. So it appeals to a much wider range of categories. And this gives us a much broader market to, to target in terms of using bunting as an ingredient. But I also think our focus is very much on the B2B market, which is 
using bunting protein as an ingredient to other people's products in a much wider scale. That's Matthew Skinner, Chief Financial Officer with Wide Open Ag, speaking with Joe Prendergast. Now, as promised, we will take a look at the nation's wool sales before one o'clock. Firstly, a little sneak peek at a story you'll catch on Landline this weekend. Bullo River Station. It's located on the WANT border and it was made famous in the 1990s because of novels written by the former owner, Sarah Henderson. These days, it's owned by rich listers Adrian and Alexandra Burt from WA, who have struck up a partnership with the Australian Wildlife Conservancy to help protect Bullo's natural environment and amazing array of wildlife. NT Country Hour presenter Matt Brand visited this remote property and spoke to AWC ecologist Dr Eridani Mulder to find out what makes Bullo River so special. Bullo's really unique. Um, we're just inside the um, Northern Territory from the WA border and there's a really broad range of habitats here, some of which have pretty high conservation significance. There's a number of really unique species. For instance, this is one of the only places in the Northern Territory where scaly-tailed possums are found. They've only been known from here since 2018. A huge number of bird species, around 180 birds, um, wetlands, um, there's obviously a croc, healthy croc population, yeah, and lots of uh, rock wallabies um, and small mammals up in the gorges, so really spectacular place. And what I've learned today is Bullo River is also home to lots and lots of cameras. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we're not spying on people. Um, we're trying to spy on wildlife um, and feral cats, really. Yeah, so we have uh, camera traps, which are triggered by uh, changes in temperature, basically. It's passive infrared. Um, we use them a lot for wildlife monitoring, but um, you can put them out in the bush, leave them there for months on end if you need to and collect heaps of information about the secret lives of wildlife and uh, what their nemesis feral cats are getting up to. So at Bullo at the moment we have around 130 cameras out in the bush. Um, that seems them... a lot. I've heard of camera traps before but 130 of them seems <laughs> next level. Well yeah I guess but uh, for AWC that's actually not really that many yeah we across the whole organization we have thousands of them they're one of our biggest and most useful tools in finding out you know all of this information that otherwise you would have to send people out to try and you know actually track things down and and collect those data so yeah super useful to us at the moment what are they telling you what information are you getting that's of use so I obviously haven't collected them at the moment. They're still in the field. They'll be out there for six weeks. Uh, but when we collect them, these sorts of data sets provide us information on habitats that cats are using and also wildlife. You know, because every animal that triggers it, we can collect that information because it gives you um, time of day, obviously the location of the camera trap. And so across the landscape, you can see what habitats these animals are using how many of them there are so you can get a, an index of activity from the camera traps how many times they're in front of the camera um, and this is everything from very small mammals bandicoots cats wallabies all the way up to you know feral pigs buffalo donkeys cattle so yep. yeah a huge amount of information comes in it's a lot of photos so many so awc um 
back when I started many, many years ago, you had to look at every photo and transcribe manually into an Excel spreadsheet. But uh, nowadays we use um, artificial intelligence, so algorithms for detecting whether there are animals in the photo or not. And so that can filter out all of the false triggers. So things like shadows and waving bits of grass, nobody wants to look at 10,000 of those. (laughs) So that hugely increases the efficiency of processing all those images because we regularly will end up with a data set of more than a million images and yeah so huge time saver huge money saver and yeah lots of great information how do you get rid of feral cats i wish i knew matt but um this is a question that's vexing for all of uh our ecologists and and lots of conservationists and scientists across australia um You know, for instance, the federal government's just put out the National Feral Cat Abatement Strategy, open for comment. But it's a, yeah, really tricky problem, right? Mm. Because there's there's no one dedicated method that works really well in terms of trying to um, eradicate them anywhere. So you've got to put all of your kind of knowledge to try and uh, outsmart them and manage the landscape and... um, different methods of control all combined together so you know that can be um, trapping it can be shooting it can be use of things like uh, felix or grooming traps but also um, bigger levers that we can pull in ecological systems things like fire management and uh, we're here at a field day at Bullo River and it's an interesting station to go to because it's it's almost split in three there's tourism there's pastoralism and this conservation where you come in. I wanted to ask the question, what role do you think conservation can play in helping tourism and pastoralism? Oh, we think it's a really good match within AWC. And I guess many of your listeners would know, you know, around 50% of Australia's northern rangelands is pastoral lease. So there's a really natural uh, kind of partnership that can be formed there because obviously not every part of any given property is suitable for uh, pastoralism. You know, there's going to be gorges and and other areas that can't be used for cattle. And so management of those can also provide value for uh, pastoralists because then you might not have your cattle disappearing into these gullies and things, and so they're easier to keep control of. Um, And under conservation well, AWC in particular, we focus very heavily on uh, fire management, um, feral animals and weed control. And those are all things which are you know, hugely important to pastoralists as well. So when we're reinstating um, better fire regimes, you end up with uh, better returns on pasture through the year. You reduce the number of really big, late, um, hot wildfires late in the year, which takes out all of your feed. Um, through like in part of the build-up and into the wet. And so, um, yeah, there can be really big benefits for both pastoralists and conservationists. And so from our perspective, you know, conservation of those wildlife, you know, that's Australia's natural heritage. And um, obviously for tourism ventures, having those animals in the landscape is a huge draw card for tourism and, you know, healthy, intact ecosystems just makes the experience heaps better. 
That's Dr Eridani Mulder, Senior Wildlife Ecologist for the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, speaking with Matt Bran at Bullo River Station, which will feature on Landline this Sunday on ABC TV at 12.30. Or if you miss it, you can always catch it on ABC iView. But what are your thoughts on properties run by or with organisations like the Australian Wildlife Conservancy? Does it end up as a win-win for the environment and pastoralism? Send me a text, 0448 922 You'll have to do it pretty quick, smart, because uh, we're heading to the news shortly. Before we do, though, time to have a look at wool, where uh, prices fell right across the nation again this week. Danny Burkett has been following all the sales. Hi, Danny. Um, did prices fall all that much? Yeah, we had the Eastern Market indicator was off 10 cents this week to close at 11.28. Fremantle, very similar, that was off 12 to close at 12.51. The first day, it was really the fine wools that actually took the brunt of the market, in particular 16, 17 micron wools. In parts, they did fall 40 to 50. If we look across um, Fremantle for the week, 18 micron fell 10 cents clean to close at 14.65. 19 micron closed. Uh, was off 15 to close at 13.70. 20 microns off 10 to close at 12.95. 21s lost the gains from last week. They were off 20, closing at 12.70. We look at the 22s, they were off 15 to close at 12.40. Pieces and bellies up on the first day, back on the second. So roughly par for the week, although the broader you went, probably lost five to 10 cents over those two days. If we look at locks, have been the, the particular part of the market that have been up and down and all over the show. This week, they fell 50 cents clean. If we remember back over the last three weeks, they've been up 50 one week and off 50 the next. It was the down week this week. Locks, uh, we had stains and crutchings fully firm for the week and lambs this week remain fully firm. If we look at Fremantle, if we look at an 18 micron, we're looking at uh, Merino fleece wool, 185 kilos, sound, $1,845 a bale for 18 micron, 19 micron, $1,725 a bale, 20 micron, $1,630, 21s and 22s at $1,600 and $1,560 per bale. Danny, the, uh, the market's been falling for a few weeks now. Can you see prices picking up anytime soon? We've had some, um, if you look at demand with what we've been offering, it was gazetted to have 42,000 bars on the market this week. But if we look what ultimately was offered nationally, after the withdrawals, there was just shy of 40,000. Once the past-ins were done, we cleared 36,000 to the trade. What, um, what concerns me if we do not see a shift in demand over the coming weeks, what happens every year, and it will happen this year in three to four weeks' time, we'll start to have those offerings sneak up around that sort of 50 to 55,000 bale mark. And as an industry, we produce a four-week forecast and with it, uh, the international wool trade know that we are producing that amount of wool. So if we don't have a, a slight uptick in demand, um, I think as we move into the coming weeks, it could put the market under a little bit of pressure. Mm, radio. So uh, who were the main buyers this week, Danny? We had the normal crew, but good to see Endeavour Wool Exports. They took just shy 16% of Merino fleece on offer. TJ Morris taking 13% tackle, 13% TNU 12. So it's been those top four that have just shifted positions over the last three to four weeks. Been good to see them up there in the market again. Tech Wool, largest buyer in the crossbred, worth noticing. And Tech Wool, the largest buyer in the skirtings also. 
Thank you, Danny. We'll speak to you next week. Selling in all centres on Tuesday and Wednesday and a fine wool sale as well. Catch you next time. News time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.